0: Hi, this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. And UFO Week has Christopher Munch on a film he did called The 11th Green, which presents an alternate history on UFOs, maybe mixed with some real too, with Campbell Scott playing a reporter that looks into them. There is more Sci-Fi Talk, so stay tuned has Christopher Munch, and he is the director and the writer of a film called The Eleventh Green. And an uh, interesting story, uh, where essentially a journalist moves into a house that was once owned by Dwight Eisenhower, former general and president, and it kind of leads him on an interesting path into UFOlogy. Uh, great to have you on the podcast, Chris. Uh, interesting idea for a film.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: We'll, we'll address something real quickly. When you cast people to play historical figures, uh, my philosophy has always been you don't need to get an exact double as long as they suggest the character. And you certainly did that in this film with Dwight Eisenhower and even a Obama-like president.
1: Thank you. Yes, I, I mean, I have found in the past that... Uh, the closer you aim for a true likeness to an historical figure, sometimes that works against you uh, because you can never get somebody who is truly exactly like a person. And of course, there are great actors who who can do wonderful uh, portrayals, but For our purposes, George Gerties, who plays Eisenhower in our film, I think did the best Eisenhower who's been done yet on film.
0: Yeah, no, he uh, he certainly looks the part and certainly acted the part. So, um, yeah, I had no qualms with him uh, at all in that part. Speaking of the cast, I'm a huge fan of Campbell Scott. Basically, for one of the many things he's done is he reads audio books and does a magnificent job doing that. So getting an actor of his caliber in this film is a coup for you. I mean, you know, playing this kind of role for him, I could certainly see him doing this. Uh, What was it like to work with him, and what did he bring to this part?
1: Well, he was a sheer joy to work with Campbell, and I'm looking forward to working with him in future projects as well. I feel very fortunate that uh, he was available and willing to do the film. And added to that... He's a director, of course, himself, so it was very helpful for him to be a kind of rigorous uh, dramaturgical voice uh, in analyzing areas of the script that might need work. He and the other actors were a very clear compass bearing for me on areas of the storyline that might need clarification or alteration, uh, given the fact that our story involves a great deal of information, and interweaving that information with the emotional journey of the characters was the foremost challenge of the script writing. So having these wonderful actors who could, who could offer their warnings or their uh, opinions if something wasn't working for them as an actor was extremely valuable. But beyond that, Campbell was somebody I, I loved seeing every day and was a huge support on many levels to me.
0: And, and getting Agnes Bruckner, of course, from Once Upon a Time, another little coup there. She's a terrific actor.
1: She really is. And I think she brought a lot to this part, which wasn't an easy one. And uh, yeah. I think she brought a lot to the relationship uh, with with Campbell in the film. So I'm I'm very pleased with her work and very privileged uh, to have her in the film.
0: Their characters kind of ground everything, don't they?
1: I think so. I mean, we sort of get pulled along on their journey. And as we do that, we have the opportunity to react either with uh, uh, incredulity or whatever, <laughs> fear incredulity. Uh, excitement to the information that's being revealed to Jeremy along the way.
0: Mm -hmm. And on a personal note, I have to say, always happy to see Catherine Lee Scott, who I've had the privilege of interviewing a few times, of course, from Dark Shadows, as Mamie Eisenhower. She's a terrific lady.
1: Well, Catherine is another actor who was just a joy to work with. And I, I was incredibly grateful for the enthusiasm that she brought to portraying Mamie Eisenhower uh, it was just a godsend. And she brought a, a glamour quotient as well to that part that I think served our story well and served the romantic part of our story well. Uh, seeing this couple who've been together for decades uh, near the end of Eisenhower's life and seeing just how devoted they were to each other. I think she really brought something special to the film, no question. Mm,
0: yeah. Such an interesting uh, case. You know, it a- asks the question how much does the government know? And how much does the president know? Either the current president or obviously Ike is very involved to what's going on. Uh, But speak on that aspect to to it, as far as approaching that and taking, I guess you have to take the leap that the government does know something.
1: Yes. I mean, for me, I should preface this by saying that I was never somebody who had uh, an overriding interest in so-called ufology, uh, really? but I did have an inter- I did have an interest in so-called exopolitics and the relationship of the nation state to the citizenry with regard to this subject matter. And presidential exopolitics was especially interesting to me because we, as a society, invest so much in the uh, institution of the American presidency, all of our hopes and aspirations. That having a character who occupies that role being our our person, so to speak, and being someone who can interpret these extraordinary events for us uh, was very useful. So my starting point from the film was the emotional what-if involving President Eisenhower, uh, right. a man who was not known to have had uh, an extraordinary ego himself or a predisposition to personal power, but really was, uh, I think, uh, a good, uh, a very good servant of the people, uh, despite my misgivings about some of his covert actions during his presidency, in any case, uh, there were there was the uh, sort of mythology or urban legend that Eisenhower on more than one occasion in the 1950 s met with representatives of extraterrestrial races and this this folklore apparently started as a result of the mystic uh, Gerald Light uh, writing about this to his publisher and this folklore has continued uh, unabated for, for for decades, so what interested me most was less the question of whether that story was truthful or not, or whether it was factual. But if it were factual, how would it have affected this man towards the end of his life? And then later, the idea of introducing another president who's a little bit more in the dark about the subject seemed like a a wonderful way to kind of explore the themes that only two presidents really could explore among themselves.
0: That was a nice, uh, nice touch. Campbell Scott, was he based on anybody, his character?
1: Not Not specifically, no, no, but the idea is that he's somebody who came from a somewhat privileged background and has been devoting himself to public affairs uh, broadcasting. He has a sort of cross-platform uh, broadcast that he he puts on with Lila Parnell and writes for other respected outlets and generally has an interest in exotic technology, but of course is trying to walk that tight ro- walk that tightrope where he doesn't go too far out on a limb with speculative uh, information and uh, get marginalized in a way.
0: When he finds evidence at his home that was owned by the former president, would you say that he becomes maybe not obsessed, but he maybe is kind of hooked on this particular case, and like any good reporter, can't let it go until he reaches the end.
1: Well, yes, and moreover, I think he's concerned that there is some sort of deliberate attempt to leak this information to him as a result of the reporting that he has recently been doing about a contemporary aerospace company that is attempting unsuccessfully to migrate uh, a so-called black world exotic technology into commercial aviation uh, for the benefit of their bottom line, as well as that of their customers and the environment, all of that. So he's intrigued by this, but also very nervous because he doesn't know if he's being set up, which his colleague Lila continually warns him about.
0: You shot some period piece moments as well. How, how was that to, to do that and... Uh... You know, you got to credit your cinematographer, Sarah Garth, for capturing that look.
1: Yes, it was a very satisfying film on that level as far as introducing a number of different photographic textures and a number of different devices that were to evoke the eras that were being depicted. Uh, One of the great pleasures of working on the film, uh, for me personally, was the opportunity to review so many thousands of feet of archive film at the National Archives Searching for material that could possibly serve our story uh, could be repurposed for our story, and uh, in some cases, you know, with the addition of objects and so forth could be altered uh, to to help tell the story that we were trying to tell. So uh, there was a challenge to make sure that the different eras were distinct, in their visual tone so that the audience could have a certain shorthand of, of orientation as they moved from, say, 1967 in Palm Desert to 1955 on a train to the contemporary era to this out-of-time dreamscape in which the two presidents meet. I think that the film is successful on that level. People haven't reported being disoriented by that, uh, uh, those shifts in locale and era.
0: You mentioned Lila Parnell, played wonderfully by April Grace, who fans remember from Mockingjay Part 2. That relationship with her and Jeremy seems to be a very important one as well in the film, uh, which, which, uh, you know, she seems to kind of uh, keep him on the right path a little bit from what I could tell.
1: Yes, I'm sure that that is the case. But it's also the case that Lila represents the media establishment in a certain sense, which thus far has had a very poor track record of dealing with the phenomenon of UFOs and the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And indeed over the decades uh, since the Second World War, the media has been uh, responsible for, for spreading some inaccurate information, both wittingly and unwittingly, and generally has been uh, an accomplice in <laughs> indoctrinating us into the so-called giggle factor and into yeah. the unwillingness to take the phenomenon of UFOs seriously. So, on the one hand, Lila comes to it with a certain amount of baggage about UFOs. She says, "If all this stuff is true, I'm not sure I'm ready to hear that." Uh, in that way, she comes around uh, at the end of the story. She, uh, you know, without giving too much away, she she's on a journey of her own with respect to this material. So I would, it would be my hope that in coming years, as uh, more and more uh, factual information uh, comes out in the media, such as the recent revelations of the US Navy's engagement with various anomalous aerial phenomena, uh, you know, off the coast of, of California, as more yeah. of these stories are published uh, incontrovertibly, uh, it's my hope that the media will, will rise to the challenge uh, in
0: covering them. Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment. Yeah, I mean, they are UFOs because they are unidentified. Whether they're alien or not, that's a whole other matter. But it's definitely something we cannot identify. And they moved at a speed that was faster than, than we're capable of moving. So it's something to ponder for sure.
1: Correct, correct. And I think to the degree that the media can help uh, the public stop conflating the empirical reality of UFOs with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, Right. I think that will go a long way towards uh, helping them to begin to look more seriously. And, and the, the New York Times articles, uh, the Washington Post editorials on this, these uh, events, I believe, uh, have have helped, have helped yeah. in that regard. Yeah.
0: Where we have Campbell Scott as Jeremy Rudd, reporter, is on a trail to find out exactly what's behind evidence that he found in his home that links... President Dwight Eisenhower to possibly UFOs and maybe even alien contact. So it's a who done it. It really is a who done it and a mystery, and those are interesting stories to tell, whether it's UFOs or not. And and that was the approach you wanted to take with this, or did you have something else in mind?
1: Yes, that was the approach. Um, I had also thought. Definitely to present this story in a more matter-of-fact and realistic way than we've seen uh, in some of the more genre-type of filmmaking that you know has come out. So the the goal really was to allow us as an audience to be a fly on the wall in these matter-of-fact conversations about presidential uh, exopolitics, and also to to interweave with that a certain amount of information about. Uh, the story of our country's you could call it a premature intersection with uh, off world objects uh, after the second world war and and how that information became secretized and and utilized in industry and in effect now you have so many people uh, clamoring for for a more formal uh, release of that information or disclosure and whether that whether or not that comes about I think will depend largely upon the citizenry itself, and to what degree each of us individually is willing to look inside and truly acknowledge what our relationship to the phenomenon is, and to uh, ask the hard questions, look at our own shadow, rather than projecting uh, outward on the government, in in quotes. Uh, And it's never really been the government, in quotes, I think it was always anticipated that this information need, needed to be uh, truly autonomous and needed to be separate from the government and the executive branch, uh, so that plausible deniability of, of the existence of these events could, could be maintained. So that's why you find very few people who have had access to the information and the fact that it resides in you know highly secretized, highly compartmentalized special access programs.
0: Yeah, no, it's... Uh... I mean, with UFOs, there's always more questions than answers. To me, going back to the Betty and Barney Hill case. All right, so it didn't happen. So how does a woman with no knowledge of astronomy actually draw the reticuli star system? That's something that a normal person would not be able to do. So that's a question that we still don't have an answer to.
1: John Fuller's wonderful book, Uh, The Interrupted Journey has been known to many of us, and it was known to me certainly since my childhood. And that particular case was very important, I think, in public awareness of this phenomenon. And it's interesting, just as an interesting footnote to that, when John Huston's documentary, Let There Be Light, uh, was restored and re-released a number of years ago, the psychiatrist, who was the man who interviewed Betty and Barney Hill, and conducted their hypnosis sessions, was shown at work at Walter Reed Hospital uh, treating shell-shocked soldiers after the Second World War. And to see him actually in action was was truly amazing. Uh, Dr. Simon, I believe his name was. And I believe the film that was made of that story, uh, uh, I forget what the title was, but it starred Estelle Parsons and uh, James Earl Jones and Barnard Hill. Uh, Really, really one of the best uh, films on on a UFO-related topic.
0: Yeah, I believe they actually used the, uh, the transcripts from the session uh, as uh-huh. the dialogue of, of the film. So they, were, they tried to keep it as accurate as possible. Special effects-wise, the aliens could have been a little better, but they didn't have a huge budget, so they just kind of did the best they could. But the impact of the story and two great actors bringing both of them to life really added a lot of cloud to me, and and that's really what stood out to me.
1: Absolutely. You're absolutely right.
0: So speaking of effects, I guess the question would be is, how much did you want to show? And, you know, without giving anything away, of course, and was there any uh, digital magic involved?
1: Well, let's see. There was a desire to have whatever visual effects were in the film be appropriate for it and not, you know, draw attention to themselves. You know, obviously the techniques that are available now are 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 vast, uh, and anything can be shown. But to a certain degree, at least with the period footage, it was my goal simply to include uh, effects of, of aerial objects in a, in a rather utilitarian way. You know, as they might have been depicted in in one of the films of that era. So you know, you see. 50s-era metallic-looking discs in, in a few cases. But apart from that, you know, there wasn't really any desire to, to make a special effects picture. The visitor that we depict in the film is, is depicted as just a, a man, really. I guess you could say that it's, it's a, non, <laughs> a non-VFX-oriented uh, story about uh, alien visitation.
0: You know, it's uh, there's always interpretations you can go into with that too. Yes. So it's not it's not an open and shut case, I guess. Is the best way to say it. Yes. So the film is available uh, to see now. Is that correct?
1: Uh, it'll be available this Friday, the twenty sixth. Oh, great! Uh, it's. Yeah, it's streaming from the Joma Films theatrical at home platform, uh, which allows uh, a portion of the revenue to flow to, you know, the theater of your choice. um, Oh, that's nice. uh, As if you had attended a screening in person there. So uh, the best way probably to find it, I can just give my website address name, uh, ChristopherMunch.com. And there's a link at the very top of that that would take you. Uh, to the page where you can, you can access it beginning uh, on the
0: 26th. No, I like that the, uh, that the theaters of your choice get a little bit out of it too, because obviously they have not had the year that uh, they expect. And on the other hand, um, we're kind of all indoors these days, or we should be. So as much as we can be. And uh, so any, we're always looking for entertainment.
1: Indeed, indeed, and this is a way to see new releases uh, without yeah. waiting for them to be available in in VOD. So I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the film will be able to reach people who might not ordinarily have seen it during its first run. Since if it were actually playing in physical theaters, it would only be in a few places uh, in the larger cities. So we have a number of theater partners who are listed on the uh, the drop down list uh, who might oh. not have. The film originally, so yes, I, I, I hope that That's people will great. see it. Even though it's fundamentally a theatrical film, uh, this is the way that you know, this is the way that it's available now uh, to be to be watched.
0: Well, I have a big screen, so I can you know I, I can enjoy it. I can enjoy it as close possible to something larger than the old twenty-five inch screens that we used to have.
1: Exactly, the bigger the better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Christopher, thank you for being on the podcast and talking about this really intriguing film, The 11th Green. As I said, I'm a huge fan of Campbell Scott. So it's great that he's in this. And uh, I know he's good. I know he's really good. So I'm looking forward to seeing. Well,
1: thank you. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Tony. And uh, thanks for having me.
0: For Sci-Fi Talk and UFO Week, this is Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening.